Hi, everybody. I'm Rick Dancer. Welcome to Get Real with Rick Dancer. Uh, we're really glad to have you aboard. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about fisheries in Oregon, uh, specifically what happened after the fires a couple of years ago to those fisheries and what's happening now. Uh, so we're going to find out kind of an update on all that. Our sponsors, Chris Dental Family Dentistry and Denture Center out of Eugene, Oregon. If you are looking for a denturist, he's got one on staff. If you're looking for a great dentist, Michael Bratlin is your man. And he sponsors all of our shows because he believes that everybody should have a voice and we should have information uh, that we are not always uh, at the tip of our fingers. Um, had a nice compliment from a viewer today. I should get, I'm going to get it and find it. But she just said, I love your shows because you never know what's going to happen. And I learned so much stuff about so many weird things. And somebody asked me here in Montana. So what's what's your show about? And I said, oh, it's kind of about kind of like me, just like about everything, because I have lots of interests and I I think everything is important. So uh, that's kind of what we do. And our other sponsor is who the show is going to be with Douglas Timber Operators. Um, and Matt Hill, uh, it, it actually now he's a, we, we call him a movie producer too, but he uh, works for the uh, Douglas Timber Operators, but he also created a series of videos after the fires at Archie Creek uh, to kind of document. Matt lives up that way, knows a lot of people up that way, and he wanted to document what happened because when you document things and people can't forget and they remember and we learn from documentation of what happened. So tonight we're going to talk about fisheries, um, have a guest coming on again with Matt as well. But what I want to start with is the story, uh, the video that Matt put together to kind of set up everything. And then we're going to have a conversation with them. So here you go. My name is Dan Meyer and uh, I am the manager of Rock Creek Hatchery. I've been working here since 1986. The function of the hatchery is to provide a recreational fishery for the sports and commercial fisheries. The species that we produce are uh, spring chinook, fall chinook, summer steelhead, winter steelhead, coho, and rainbow trout. The history of the hatchery entailed um, some movement. Originally it was on the south side of Rock Creek and uh, just north of the confluence of, of the North Umpqua. That was built back in the 20s and it was, it was a startup facility. They uh, trapped their fish in the river. It actually began artificial propagation of the resources here in uh, the Umpqua Basin. To work for Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife at a hatchery, it's a, it's a um, condition of employment to live and work on the facility. My residence was um, one of the, the farthest away, which was about 400 yards up our driveway on McCarn Lane. I, I raised my family here the entire time I've been here. I guess it started with us hearing the wind that was forecast sounded like a jet plane going over our house at three o'clock in the morning. And on the way back from town, I heard there was a change, there was two fires. Called my wife 
And uh, she said, yeah, I know, we're on level one now. Uh, we're getting things ready to go. So I went up to my, our house and started to uh, load up things and help load things up there. And uh, evacuators came in, said it's, it's level three, you gotta go. And you know, we were, we were watching the sky, smoke coming over the ridge over here, pretty dark black. They said it was on both sides of the river coming our way um, pretty quickly. We got up to Rock Creek Road, there was a big string of cars coming out. We met up uh, the next morning and it was just total devastation. Couldn't hardly see maybe 50 feet in front of you. Uh, we had our N95 masks on and uh, structures were gone. Our houses were gone. The Rockhead building was standing. Our generator room was standing. Our U.S. post office boxes were still intact, but yet 15 feet away, the liberation truck melted down. So what was lost was 80% of the structures on the facility, 15 structures. There was five residences, the hatch house, a large equipment garage, all the equipment was lost. The fish we lost from the fire was approximately 800,000 juveniles. We lost the entire year production of Chinook, salmon, coho, um, and steelhead and trout. But luckily enough, there was enough water seeping through the intake up there on Rock Creek to keep the adults alive. We brought in uh, eight tanker trucks and um, salvaged the fish took them to transport them to Coal Rivers where they had a place for them. My job responsibility for the salvage operation was to make the, be sure the site was safe and uh, let the, my, my boss know how many fish we needed to salvage, coordinate where they were gonna go, also logistically how to get those fish out of that, the holding pins, which were burnt to the water line. We just had uh, enough people power to, to, um, to do that. The operation went very smoothly. Seven trucks um, evacuated the 700 fish to Coal Rivers Hatchery, fertilized about 500,000 eggs. There's 332,000 juveniles down there awaiting growing and awaiting their release here at the hatchery. Now the biggest um, changes that I've found and that just are somewhat haunting, every time I go back and look at old pictures of the facility was how lush and green everything was. and how it can be just wiped out within 24 hours. And, and the vast area that was wiped out up the north. And when you travel out of the fire footprint, it comes back to how it used to be. And um, the, the thing that's so impactful is uh, how long it's gonna take. 
to recover back to where it was. We're talking century, more than decades for it to, if it's ever gonna be the same, it's, it's unimaginable to me. I just can't fathom how it's gonna come back the way it was. And joining us now, Dan Meyer. So Dan is obviously retired because look at that beard. That just says retirement. That's what happened to me, man. <laughs> Dan, Dan, thanks for being with us. And also Matt Hill uh, from the Douglas Timber Operators. So Dan, you are retired now, right? I am, yep, from the ODFNW. I'm doing a little of uh, side work right now. So what was that like? I mean, cause you, how long did you live in that? So this was housing provided by Fish and Wildlife. Yes, it was. Um, you know, I'm kind of going through a little bit of PTSD right now, but um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a, a good, good life at the hatchery, a good career. Can, can I, can I ask you, so what do, what do you mean you're going through a little PTSD right now? Oh, the video, the video what? just takes me back it's been a while since I looked at it and I don't know. What is the first, what, what's, what comes to mind? What are you thinking? Oh, just how I could have, how nice it would be to go back there, but knowing that it never could be and where we're at right now, it's just pretty sad. Do you, was this pretty shocking when you're sitting there coming back? And I mean, I was evacuated from the McKinsey up here and, you know, you're leaving your house and you're thinking, oh my God, I'm not coming back to this. Um, but, but I actually was lucky and went back to my house. You went back and everything is destroyed. Yeah. No, I mean, I was hoping for the best. Of course, we had been evacuated, um, before for a short period of time. Um, 2015, I think it was. And, uh, you know, I was just, we're eternal optimists. And uh, I knew it was bad. We just, you know, you just hope that it skipped over you or something like that. But when we went back the next day, it was, it was like a, oh my God moment. So what's life like today for you and your family? Life is good for me today community came together and they've been helping a lot of people. And, uh, I was lucky enough to purchase a home, um, during probably one of the most difficult times that I can remember, um, the housing market being in. Yeah. Um, yeah, we couldn't even see a house before it was purchased for $50,000 over the asking price sight unseen. So are you upriver at all? I'm living in Glide. So that's pretty upriver, right? Yeah. Yep. Because once you're on the river, you can't really leave the river, can you? We don't have to be on the river. We do miss the sound of the water, though. I bet. Yeah. But it's the people on the river that make all the difference, and they're oh, still there. Absolutely. Yeah. So what happened to those fish? How many survived? I mean, you, you know, you took the adult fish, the, the little ones. I kind of crushed me. I'm looking and going, oh, my God, those, those, all those fish are dead. 
And yeah, when we when we first arrived there the first day, they were alive. I had before I had left um, to pack up my house. I had made some phone calls um, to arrange for diesel to be supplied to a generator that was down on the river. And it, I knew it was only a, like a, maybe a four day supply. Um, of course, you know, after the fire went through there, generator was still running and the pumps were still pumping on the river. No. Kept those fish alive. Yeah. Um, so the fish were still alive, but we couldn't do anything with them at the time. Well, it's not like, I mean, think about all the people that had to move livestock and that's a trailer with fish. It's not like you can put them in a trailer. I mean, you got, you, you only got so many ways out. So the ones that you did, the adults that you got out in the video, what happened to them? They went to Coal River Hatchery. Did they survive? Um, they survived. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like I said, on the, on the video, there was, at that time, there was over 300,000 smolts on the Spring Chinook. But yeah, we, um, as a matter of fact, the very next week we went down and separated because there was summer steelhead and spring Chinook in that pond that were all mixed together. So we went down and segregated them again and, uh, and then spawned the spring Chinook that next week. And it was a big spawning because there was a lot of fish to go through. But So, uh, so Matt, to, um, Tell people why you kind of, because you produce, this is an eight-part series, isn't that right? And and kind of tell people about that process for you. Yeah, it's still ongoing. Um, you know, we're, we're two and a half years out from the, the fire event and you know, beginning to wrap up some of the stories and, and lessons and discussions. But, you know, the, the story of the hatchery was um, one of the most important ones to me. I, I during the fog of the of the event you know i i heard from dan uh, what had happened up there which was was devastating and and you know for people who don't live in the area rock creek hatchery it, it's been around forever uh in one form or another and, and everyone goes up there at some point um to feed fish or just you know it, it's just a it's a stop you make when you go up the river and so it was it was a real loss for um, everyone in, in the community. And I, I wanted to make sure that its story was was told and, and it was continuing to unfold, you know, in those immediate weeks after the fire when when Dan and, and his colleagues were, were trying to rescue those fish. Well, I, I was thinking when I'm watching that, Matt, just as a videographer, you know, God, you got there. You had to get up there to be serious to get up there and get that action while it was going on. So, I mean, you were all over that, which is a compliment, you know? I mean, that's... That's beautiful video to have for history to show, especially since you were telling me. So what what did the State Fish and Wildlife Commission? They they killed the, the steelhead program. So after the the adults were were rescued and taken down to Coal Rivers on, on the Rogue River, they were they were spawned. Um, their their progeny were, were grown to juvenile phase uh, and then brought back up to uh, to, to Rock Creek, which the hatchery is gone, but there's still the concrete raceways and, and fish can be held there. And so this would be spring of last year. Uh, and then there was a debate over what to do with them. And, um, you know, there's different viewpoints on, on hatchery programs and the, the Fish and Wildlife Commission 
voted surprisingly to, to terminate the program and to forbid those fish from being released out of Rock Creek and, and they would have to be taken somewhere else or, or something else done with them. So Dan or Matt, either one, so you can talk to me about that. What is the controversy over hatchery versus wild fish? Uh, the controversy is um, when hatchery fish intermingle with wild fish, um, it, the uh, gene is um, considered on a hatchery fish to be um, uh, inferior for survival because it's domesticated. You can take a wild um, brood pair and the progeny from those brood pair uh, pass them through the hatchery and on the other end is a domesticated gene. So are they weaker? Those studies have shown, some studies have shown, steelhead especially. Um, but we, um, we know that our fish through a telemetry study don't intermingle as much as what they previously thought with the wild fish during spawning. Also, there's a timing thing. Um, the hatchery fish spawn at an earlier window than the wild fish, and a lot of people don't know that. But me spawning fish all these years, I understand it. So why do we need hatchery fish then? Well, because the wild component is restricted and you cannot keep the fish. For uh, recreational purposes, the hatchery steelhead are serving that purpose. So that's the ones that when, when I'm on the McKinsey, I can catch the ones I can keep are the hatchery fish. So we wouldn't have, people wouldn't be able to go out and fish and actually keep something. Uh, they'd have to throw everything back. Correct. So that's why. And so the controversy becomes between the purist and the people who want to fish and take something home. Correct. Huh. And if, if um, the population is, is in such dire straits, then there shouldn't be any fishing on it at all. Is it in dire straits? Well, it's coming back. It was that one year that they were quoting um, record low summer steelhead return, but it was a record high um, year for temperatures also. So for you, in terms of the buildings and the, and the place, what is the... Um... What's the loss? Um, because those old buildings, you looked at them and you go, oh man, that's kind of how it used to be, you know? And there's some history there and it, a lot of history. It's just the, uh, the North Umpqua is all about, you know, the fisheries from Frank Moore to all the movie stars that used to be up there. And that's a, that's a very famous fishery up there. And what part did that hatchery play at that? Um, it's, it's historically, it was... Um... You know, it was a place that was built back in the, the 40s across the creek. It was in the 20s and moved from there. So, I mean, historically, it, it played a, a big uh, visitor's role as far as people coming up and looking and tourist role. Um, it was a destination place. People would bring their, their kids up and feed the fish and ask questions and and I yep. bet school kids, um, that's where they learned about fishing, probably fisheries and stuff like that. I, I, I know my kids went to the McKinsey hatchery up there at uh, Lieberg, and that's where they came home and learning about fish. 
the educators would bring their their kids in and we'd That's have awesome. participatory spawning events with these um, you know fifth grade and uh, grade school and high school students and it was a great day we loved it we did probably a half a dozen or or more a year so matt what did your family i'm i'm reading on these notes i have here did your family actually have something to do with building those yeah they did um seriously they came out and and homesteaded the the area in the late 1900s and at the time, the, the fisheries were, the, both salmon and, and trout fisheries were in decline back then. And, and to blame was urban pollution and urban dams and, and, and those types of things. And so the state of Oregon, um, at, at the request of some of my family members, started a hatchery program up there, found ways to fund it. And uh, hatcheries were built um, prior to 1900, uh, up at Steamboat at 1900. And then my uh, great-great-grandfather built the, the, the first iteration of Rock Creek Hatchery in 1920, uh, right across the creek from the site that, that Dan managed. And then it was moved uh, over, the, over the creek uh, and then reconstructed, I think, in the 70s. So if, if it were rebuilt, it, it would really be the fourth iteration of the Rock Creek Hatchery that's been operating there, you know, more or less for 120 years. So this is important to you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a testament to the state's um, interest in, in making sure that there's fish in the river for people to catch, um, for recreational catching, for um, sustenance, for our, our Indian tribes that are, are very involved in having fish in the river, and, um, and for the enjoyment of everyone. And, and without that, um, like Dan said, you know, the there won't be fish in the river to catch. And, and then there really isn't, uh, you, you shouldn't be fishing at all if, if, if the population is, is allowed to get to that, that point of peril. So you, you believe it should be rebuilt? Absolutely. And, and we're, you know, there, there's a lot of discussions with the state about that, um, you know, that we'll probably see some, some movement in the next, you know, month or two, um, but it's a debate. It's not, it's not for certain. Uh, it's not for certain what it will look like or how it will function. Um, and it, it gets back to a lot of those philosophical discussions about the role of hatcheries in, in fisheries management. So do you think it's going to be a battle to get that redone, to put back up there? It's, it's Oregon. So, yeah. <laughs> that's, only, that's the answer to the question. It's Oregon. So. Yeah. Well, the good thing in that, though, that is Oregon, is there's people that are really either it's important on both sides of the issue. That's, you know what I mean? That we care that much about a fishery that you're either I, I only want it to be wild or I only want it. So there has to be some kind of compromise in there. Um, yeah. And sometimes with the aid of, of a court and, and in the case of the summer steelhead decision by the State Fish and Wildlife Commission, uh, Douglas County, Yamqua Fishery Enhancement Derby, a local fishing guide, had to file a lawsuit um, to to block the decision to kill the the hatchery program. Uh, an injunction was placed, and and so the the progeny of the fish that were rescued, um, the summer steelhead that were rescued from Rock Creek Hatchery, were allowed to be released, and um, they are are out there and and living life and. Um, we'll, we'll be coming back, but the case is still ongoing. 
um, the, the future of that hatchery program, which is tied to the, the reconstruction of the hatchery, is still, still a question. And um, so it's nothing's for certain, but, you know, I, I think we're having a good showing of, of interest, like I said, from sport fishermen, from guides to local recreational uh, fishermen from the county and to, to five Western Oregon Indian tribes that have all stepped into this discussion saying we, wow. we want to be part of the solution and, and we can improve things. So, you know, you know, we talk about forest fires a lot and, um, and you know, what we need to do to change this. But Dan, I think what we haven't, this is for me in this series of doing this, this is the first one we started talking about really the, the wildlife <clears throat> and the impact on wildlife from a fire is pretty devastating. It is, yeah. The year after uh, the fire, the USGS put some stations in and temperatures in Rock Creek during the summer were close to 85 degrees. What? Oh, yeah. And I was... And what could it... Okay, so what's normal for a fish to live in? Oh, in the 60s. It gets lethal in the 70s. So, okay. So can I... Add and if you can't answer this, anything I ask you, you can't answer, just you're, you're fine. Uh, just say you can't because my audience is really used to that. But so we spend all this time coming up with bigger riparian zones along the rivers to, to keep the water cooler for the fish. But but we're not managing thinking big picture. So now you've just created by by having more forest fires like this but from our management practices, we're creating a, a problem for these fish um, that you know what I'm saying? It's just ironic. We, we spend so much time coming up with repairing zones and plans, which are good to, to protect the fish, but, but we're not looking big picture going, if we continue to have forest fires like we're having right now um, every year in Montana and Idaho and Oregon and Washington and California, all those plans are for, are, are really kind of worthless because the fires are destroying that very zone that's supposed to be protecting the fish temperature in the water. Yeah. And I, and I actually witnessed native fish in the stream dying. Wow. Matt, what did, what does that say to you? Is, is Oregon ripe for, we, we need to really be looking at the, because when, when that fire came through, not only did it change people's lives, and, and Dan's life, he, you know, loses everything in this fire, the moors. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of people all over the state of Oregon. But it's also kind of, I, I know in the, um, up here in the, up here, I'm in Montana, in the McKinsey Valley, um, it destroyed, or was that yours, that it destroyed a lot of the spotted owl habitat that was set aside so the very thing, things we're trying to protect were actually our management practices are not working well and we're actually destroying the very habitat that we've been trying to protect. Yeah, I mean, wild, wildfire is, is the greatest threat to habitat and, and environmental restoration that we face. And, and while it can be seen as natural, the, the intensity with which we're seeing it is, is not natural and setting um, all, all of these protections back, whether it's vaporizing riparian areas and increasing stream temperatures or burning old growth habitat that had been set aside. I mean, all the area in, in the Archie Creek fire on the federal lands, the, the vast majority of that was congressionally protected as wild and scenic river corridors, which means that no logging was happening before the fire. And then after the fire, they couldn't get uh, the wood out. 
Um, so now it's just sitting there as, as air-dried firewood that's going to reburn again. And, and so the, the environmental consequences of these types of fires is, is cataclysmic. And, and um, we're certainly trying to draw more attention to that and, and the, the benefits of some type of management to reduce the, the scale intensity of these fires, if for no other reason than to protect, you know, the habitat that, you know, we thought was, was had been set aside for all that. I know you do a lot of work in Salem, um, you know, talking with people and stuff. Are people starting to get the idea that that what we're doing is not working and that we're really threatening our threatened species with our management practices? I think so, particularly as, as people continue to drive through these areas over time and, and see the, the, the snail's pace recovery, if, if at all, um, and sometimes the reburn. So anyone driving from the west side over to Bend or over Mount Hood or the Sandy Am or the McKinsey or the Umpqua, they see all this, um, not to mention breathing the smoke every summer. And, and so I, I think the, the public in general understands that these are not good um, events, um, but they are they are preventable uh, or at least minimizable in in their intensity, and and that we have to do something about it. And doing nothing is not an option because it's getting worse every year. And I think what a lot of people don't understand is <clears throat> it's, it's affecting private property and pri private landowners as well. Because when the federal government isn't cleaning up its land, and if, and all these private companies are going out after a fire and getting as much salvage as they can out of that. It, I mean, it's good, but it doesn't do, it doesn't solve the problem because their next door neighbor isn't taking care. It's kind of like you keep your house all up to date and painted and ready to go. And the neighbors are just letting it go to hell, you know? So it's, it's affecting everybody that way. I was out hiking here in Montana in the Helena forest and you looked up and it was just logs down everywhere. And I'd said to my wife, that's just kindling. In our backyard, there's going to be a fire. If a lightning hits that, it's going to strike and it's going to burn up all this land up here, this beautiful timber land. Well, and one thing, you know, people think that the land recovers, you know, just on its own perfectly well. And that's not entirely true. You know, up in Rock Creek around the hatchery and on, on private and federal parcels up there. And I know Dan had to deal with this a little bit after the fire is that yeah, you've got invasive species like Himalayan blackberry and and all these other things that over Scotch broom uh, that that can overtake the site and inhibit the recovery of of um, conifers and and other species that provide you know shade to streams. So you know managers, whether it's forestry or fisheries, people are are up there still trying to trying to aid in that recovery process, but it, it's a tough task to make sure that, that the land gets set in the right direction. And if it reburns, then you just go back to square one again. I think the thing that we've been, that we culture has bought into is that just let mother nature take care of it and everything will be fine. And the truth is mother nature sometimes needs a little help uh, because people are part of the process and animals and recreation and all that. So there's, I, w I went up to Mount Hood or uh, Mount St. Helens and took a video of the federal forest land that wasn't enforced on it, that from the blast that was left to its own, to mother nature, just left it all to itself. And there was nothing there. And then you saw where Warehouser was on each side of it. And there was lush, beautiful forests that had been planted. And it was a perfect picture. In fact, I'm going to re-air that video sometime on a show and let people see because 
you really see the difference on how management brought back forests. And there's 40 years worth of timber there. And it and it's beautiful. And everybody thinks, oh, look, Mother Nature brought it back. Uh-uh, that wasn't Mother Nature. She's the, she's the spot in the middle. The outside is, is managed forest by, by foresters and things like that. Um, are you guys, is this session, is there anything coming out that looks like it's going to kind of move in a direction of taking more forest management practices in a different way or a different direction? Not, not in Oregon. Um, you know, last year, the legislature, you know, codified an agreement between um, forest landowners and environmental groups to increase riparian buffers. It's called the private forest accord. So that that's kind of been been baked and, and is implemented now at, at the federal level that that's really where a lot of the debate is happening okay um and and i think there's a lot of opportunity uh on a bipartisan basis to to get more active management out there even if it's just to put in fuel breaks across the landscape so that if you do have a big fire you you've got some defensible locations for um, firefighters to be able to to minimize the spread of these events so Dan, in retirement, are you still involved with the fisheries at all, or are you? I, I am. Glad you asked. I'm, I kind of figured you look like the kind of guy that would still be. Well, I was fortunate enough to um, get a consulting uh, position part-time with uh, the Cow Creek Indian Tribe, who oh, wow. is in a cooperative agreement with ODFNW now. Um, so... It's been interesting, and I still have a, a dog in the fight, so to speak. So what's your biggest fight? Rebuilding of Rock Creek Hatchery. Really? Yep. You know, in one way or another, one form or another, and, and working with ODFNW and, um, and the tribe, tribes, basically, but um, specifically uh, the Cow Creek tribe. So would they put in like some kind of, I mean, the old one was like the, you know, our version, would they put in more native stuff? Like what, how the tribes and stuff, like historically, how they uh, were involved with those fisheries and that kind of stuff, would that be more a part of it? Well, this is a co cooperative agreement. So, um, you know, they haven't come up with specifics yet, but they know that you're talking probably hatch boxes. I don't know. I'm just saying I would love to go to the hatchery and find out what the native American, like what the tribes did before. Oh um, yes. Before mm -hmm. the, the, you know, people were the white, us white folk before we came and did that. I'd love to know that kind of history, incorporate that into it. You'll push for that. Won't you? They, they are still working that out. They should yeah. do that. That would be a really cool, that would make, what an experience that would be. Of course, my expertise is, um, is uh, you know, aquaculture. So raising fish in a hatchery uh, situation setting. Well, Dan, thank you so much and um, for, your, for sharing your story. And I'm really sorry about your home and everything, but it looks like you're, you're doing fine. Obviously, and I, I envy that beard. My wife wouldn't. My wife wouldn't let me have one. But I got pretty long for a while there, and she goes, "You're starting to look like Santa Claus." And I thought, "Well, that's not really the look I'm going for." But you know, isn't the season? It could be Grizzly, Grizzly Adams. Yeah, see, we could call it the Letterman. <laughs> but if you let that keep going, Dan, by Christmas, you could get some gigs doing some, you know, some fishery Christmas kind of stuff. You know. Yeah. Making ends meet. I might have to. I might have to trim it a little bit for elk season. Part of your retirement plan, <laughs> Matt. Thanks again uh, for all your work uh, documenting all of this stuff.
and showing it to us. And uh, I wish we had somebody like you up in the McKinsey. That would be really, I think all of Oregon needs to document this stuff to, to, so we don't forget what happened. And Matt will be back. We have more, more series. He'll be back next month for more, uh, something different. And he always surprises me. And, and Dan, uh, thanks again. And thank you uh, for, for doing what you were doing, especially with the fisheries all those years. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. All right, you guys have a thank good you. day. See ya. So there you go. Um, that is super interesting. So you, you never think about having to get all those fish out of there and, um, and what can happen with this thing. So hopefully um, all of us will get involved. And um, I, I like the fact that, you know, the, the wild fish people and the hatchery fish people, I hope they can compromise. I know we're not that great at that in Oregon, but um, I hope we get better at it. And I pray to God that we can do something uh, to return to a place where we're managing forests um, for all uses and not just uh, getting tied up in the courts because somebody doesn't like what you're doing. Um, that's a very unfortunate thing. Share this on your page if you would. We want to thank the Douglas Timber Operators um, for, for their sponsorship. Also, Dr. Michael Bratlin at Chris Dental Family Dentistry. And if you have any questions, you can get a hold of Matt. If he's in Roseburg, he can answer those for you. Share this again on your page, okay? All right, see you guys later.